right, welcome everybody back to uh, Entrepreneur. This is Eli and Dave. Today we're with Ben Yoskovich, the founder of Highline Beta. We'll be chatting with him about turning ideas into action. So uh, Ben has a, a great sort of background in the uh, VC world and different types of ways that he's helped startups over the years. So we're excited to have this chat with you today. Ben, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So Ben, today like we'll, we'll cover a little bit about your journey. We'll cover about the business model of Highline Beta and what kind of what got you to that. And we'll kind of go from there. So uh, let's get right into it. So tell us a little bit about Ben and how did you get into founding Highline Beta? Sure. Yeah, I, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about myself. So I think that's yeah. really So by all means, if I start wandering, cut me off. But, you know, I started my first company in 1996. So I've been around a while. I've started a few companies, have worked at a couple of software companies, always in the tech space. Uh, I've been an angel investor, run accelerators. So just a, a mishmash of stuff in the tech space. And that's important because I think it, that's to a large extent what led to starting Highline Beta. We started Highline Beta myself and a co-founder, Marcus Daniels, six and a half years ago. And we wanted to combine a bunch of things that we really enjoy doing into a new model or a newish model, I would say, at least seven years ago. And so, you know, if I break down some of the components very quickly, so Highline Beta runs a venture studio and a venture capital fund. And we love investing in pre-seed early stage companies. Before Highline Beta, I did 17 angel investments. I love doing that kind of work. But we didn't want to be exclusively investors because we like building as well. And so we said, well, how do we invest in stuff and build things at the same time? And you know, again, seven years ago, this idea of a venture studio, a startup studio was starting to take a little bit of shape. There have been others like Idea Lab and others that have existed before. Of course, Betaworks in the US. She so said, well, let's build a venture studio where we're building companies, getting our hands dirty and investing. Fantastic. But then we wanted to add another component to it, which was big companies. Because what we've seen in our own portfolios was the unlock and the value that gets created when a startup gets its first customer, its first partner, it gets connected to executives at big companies that have tons of domain expertise and network. We said, well, what if we connected our venture studio to a corporate model? And so what we've done with Highline Beta is we built a innovation services company, works with large organizations across verticals, helps them identify opportunities of growth beyond their core, some of which can then lead to spinning companies out, which then goes from sort of an innovation consulting mandate to a startup creation mandate to an investment mandate. And that's how those dots get connected. So it's a bit complicated. There's a few moving pieces to it, but it was combining a bunch of things that we enjoy doing and trying to provide the startups that we invest with, uh, with maximum leverage to get from zero to one as quickly as possible. Ben, quite a few angel investments that you made early on Curious what you found during that process. What did you learn? Which ones ended up, you know, working and what lessons that did you have to kind of learn along the way? And I assume you're now applying that in how you do things at Highline. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I think is interesting is maybe it's because you caught me on a particular day, David, but is the length of time it takes for startups to exit. So if you are the first check-in, which I was the first or one of the first checks into many companies as a small angel investor, I still have a number of companies in my portfolio that are eight-ish years in the making and still going strong. So liquidity for early angels, tough. 
And you often, because you were a small investor uh, and they go on to raise more and more capital, sort of get not pushed to the side, not forgotten necessarily, but you're just not the priority from a relationship perspective. So you write those early checks, then you say, wait a second, this could be a 10-year journey. And you kind of know it's going to take that long, but you don't really realize it till till it happens. So that's one thing is that the period for liquidity is often long. And so when I think about Highline Beta, that's a good lesson because you know now we run a, a venture capital fund. We have LPs, we're the GPs, and Marcus and I often think about how do we get liquidity to generate returns for our investors? You know, is there a way of driving an earlier exit? Is there a way of getting something into a secondary? So that's one big lesson for me. I think the other is when I started angel investing, a lot of it was in the network of friends, people who were starting companies. They said, you know what? I've known you a long time. I trust you. I will invest. It didn't mean I necessarily understood their business super deeply. It didn't mean I understood their industry necessarily. I was, again, more horizontal as opposed to vertically. I wasn't only investing in fintech, for example, or prop tech or something else. And that's fun. You get to learn a lot and see a lot. Your ability to add value sometimes can be questionable in those cases, right? Because you're not necessarily an industry expert. So again, now you jump to Highline Beta and you say, well, we're still somewhat horizontal in scope because we work with corporate partners across the board. You know, how do we bring more expertise into what we're investing in? The due diligence that you do as a VC compared to an angel can be significantly different. So it's it's really professionalizing that whole experience. At the end of the day, when you're doing pre-seed as an angel or a VC, you're still making bets on people. At the end of the day, it's still that's 100%. You can't pretend all the due diligence in the world does not matter. You basically look at that person and say, I believe you're going to figure this thing out. And a studio can help you for a period of time and create value. Once you leave the venture studio, it's still the startup is still owned by that founder. They've got to make it win. So that at the end of the day, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, I've done probably about 12 to 15 angel things myself. And the ones that had very abrupt flameouts and became zeros pretty fast were ones where I didn't know the people quite as well, I found. And you know, I was fortunate enough to invest in a few where I just knew, like, I want to be a shareholder in whatever they do, you know, and those are the ones, you know, not to toot my own horn for getting it right. But those are the ones that, you know, end up doing something significant. So I just, in my experience, it's been 100% people driven, but I can't say that I've done it very systematically or that I've added value post investment. I've kind of just been a ride along. Yeah, uh, but it's been fun. It's, it's, it's super interesting. You know, sometimes as an angel, you get excited by a hot deal. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of hot deals in this market today, but there are sometimes bull markets where you're where you get a hot, oh, I, I want to invest with those super successful or celebrity type investors, but I don't really know the founder, but I want to invest anyway. That's dangerous, of course. It can work sometimes as well. It is 100% a better on the people. I've also had the experience, by the way, I've had some exits. I've also had the paper value go up astronomically and go to zero, which there's an investment I made many, many years ago. And I thought, that's it. That's my retirement fund. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a genius. Like, I couldn't believe it. You know, it was just like, it was going, it was going, it was going. And it went to zero, 100% to zero. I got nothing, you know? So that's also a good lesson where you look at that paper value, you look at those multiples and you think, well, that's a home run. It's sometimes hard to, not sometimes, it's almost always hard to tell. Again, at that pre-seed, 
what's going to win, how's it going to win, where it's going to go, how is it going to pivot? So I'm not going to quite say angel investing is gambling. That's too far to go because that would be crazy. But it's not that far off from that. Yeah, but yeah. Just one point, Eli, that I'll riff off of that and then I'll I'll pause and let it go back to you. But Ben, do you know Hashem Abelhosen? I do not. He runs Rocket Mortgage Canada and he worked at Vantage in Vancouver like a long time ago, but good friend of mine. He's actually been on the podcast. But uh, a long time ago, I remember him showing me an Excel model where he ran a where he ran a Monte Carlo simulation on portfolio returns in venture. Had a whole bunch of inputs, very intelligently built model. But I remember him saying basically like you need like 40 deals, you know, to have any kind of like defined range that your return might be in. Otherwise, it's just it could be all over the map, just given the volatility that's inherent in any given venture investment, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, it, it's definitely look, it's definitely a portfolio game. I think what's interesting on the angel side is that you can get into angel investing with relatively small checks. Uh, 5K, as an example. Uh, now, 5K is still a lot of money, so it's never about diminishing the size of the check at all. But it doesn't have to be 50K checks, 100K checks, 25K checks. You can actually get in uh, with a small amount of money, but you still have to take the portfolio approach. You still have to do that 20 plus angel investments to grow the portfolio. Again, at that early stage, the risk, that's the highest risk. Lots of things happen over the duration of that company, that startup's existence most of which you you don't control. So it is about building up a big enough portfolio. So you have to look at it and say, how much money do I want to put into angel investing? What percentage of my worth, my net worth, am I willing to and comfortable putting into angel investing? Figure out the size of the check. And some of the best advice is, you know, same size check each time. I, of course, did not do that, but I got that advice from other people. You've got to get to, you know, 20-ish plus companies to make it work. But it doesn't have to be big checks. So a lot of people can get into angel investing who maybe aren't into it today. There's a couple of companies, and I don't know if you guys do something similar to that in any part of your company, but they what they're doing is they're trying to democratize the access to angel investing, right? And I don't know if democratize the right word, but anyway, basically they're they're combining a bunch of small checks or you know, relatively small checks into one big investment as a whole and making investments into a bunch of different companies. And I thought that was pretty cool, you know, for a company that is helping someone that is looking to put two grand or five grand or whatever, and they've got like a minimum threshold of, okay, we want to put in 25,000 or 30,000. So as long as we can raise this much, we're going to make this investment. And, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with these kind of companies, but I found that pretty interesting. So I think at Highline Beta, we've run a couple of syndicates, angelist syndicates, and that's Mm -hmm. a very, very good model. It's a very good way to get a deal flow. It's a very good way to network with other angel investors Because again, that's another thing that sometimes can hold angel investors back is where do I get my deal flow from? So syndicates are a very good way of doing it. And at Highline Beta, when we make those pre-seed investments in startups, we're also looking for co-investors all the time. And so most of those co-investors are angels because there aren't a lot of pre-seed venture capital funds. You know, Again, we're investing through our studio model, at least we invest at Incorporation. So we've helped validate something. We've decided we want to start this company with this founder. We're going to put the first check into the bank account when the bank account gets opened. I mean, that's how early we are. And that's not where most VCs are going to play. So for us, it's network angel investors is usually where we can bring in the extra money, those checks, but also the expertise. 
can come with that, right? You can find an angel investor who knows a ton about something you're working on, can unlock tons of doors, doesn't have to write a big check, but put skin in the game. And that makes it really impactful for them to create value. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the model of uh, Pylon because I found it interesting. I know we explored it a couple of years back. We had chatted a little bit about that. And so, so how does it normally work? Is it someone approaches you, Ben, and says, here's the idea of the startup I want to launch? You know, are you guys interested in either, you know, being a VC only or a venture studio whereby I can join you guys and sort of partner up and we start X amount of time together to get it off the ground? And then I go, you know, I go off on my own or whatever it is. Just explain us the, the model because I found it very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So we, I would say we get, I'm going to say ideas right. from um, three places. One is through our work with corporate partners. So again, we engage with corporate partners more in an in agency type model. We uncover some opportunity that with that corporate partner, we believe could be a spin out that would warrant creating a new startup for. And so that's, one place where we would source opportunities and say, hey, we've done a lot of work on this. We think there's something here. Why don't we go create a company? In that scenario, we would recruit a founder, bring them in. They would still own the bulk of the company. So that's a really important component to it. And then we would support them in the venture studio. So that's sort of source one. And I I call that often the top-down model, right? You start with a corporate partner and you you find a a spin-out. The bottom-up model, we get sort of, again, ideas or opportunities from two places. One is our team is always exploring different things that they're interested in. And so, again, in that model, we will do some of the validation ourselves out of interest, get it to a place where we say, we think there's something here, but we really need somebody else to come in and take the ball and run with it. And in that scenario, we would bring in a founder in residence. So this is pre-incorporation. We would say, hey, come in. This is what we've done. Do you want to take this, run with it? Let's figure this out for a period of time and then decide if we want to incorporate a company. The third approach, and it's what you described, Eli, which is a founder comes to us with something. I have to see this problem. I've worked in this space for 20 years. I got to go fix this. I have an idea. And so again, in that scenario, we would look at the founder and say, okay, interesting idea. We very much like you as a person come into the venture studio Let's work on this together for a while, see if it's a good fit, and then we would incorporate a company. And very quickly, the way that process would work, I call it a dating period, which is Mm -hmm. really 30 to 90 days with a a founder where we're dating them, they're dating us, we're dating the idea. We're trying to figure out, do we believe there's enough here to start a company? Then we would incorporate the company. And then it's really a six to nine month sprint where we're supporting the build, the go-to-market, the traction side of things will help them with recruiting of team members to the company, will help them raise dollars. So then we become essentially pseudo or temporary co-founders while they're in the venture studio. So there's that pre-incorporation and then there's incorporated mm-hmm. and now we're, we're in the game. Great. And, and when you take on people, sorry, one last question on this. When you take on people, is one of the criteria that you think you can add value based on the existing corporate relationships that you have? that could really add value to them and increase the chances of success? Or is that just one of the criteria? No, that's a key. I mean, our ability to add value is definitely at the top of the list. One of the ways we do that is through our corporate network. So if we're working on something that's bottom, if it's top down, of course, the corporate partner is already engaged. In a perfect world, 
we bring in a founder, we start the company, and that corporate partner is the first customer or the first distribution partner or creating an immediate and obvious value. In the bottom-up model, we're always looking for ways to connect that founder and that startup into the corporate network. That can mm-hmm. either be very directly, you know, this is going to work absolutely with this customer we have, they need to partner. But yeah. it also often works with the executives that work at those corporate companies that are there to provide feedback, advice, suggestions, because partnering a company that's been incorporated for 20 minutes with a corporate, with a gigantic multi-billion dollar company is tricky. So it's more looking for that connectivity, the relationship building that ideally leads to some material commercial relationship downstream. So that's always a component of the value that we want to bring to to the founder when we're starting a company with them. Ben, earlier we talked about how it's so people-driven at the angel stage, at the pre-C stage. Having said that, a lot of what you just talked about was sourcing ideas and the different areas you source them and then you you know match people to those ideas and get things moving. Talk to us about what makes a good idea. How do you... Obviously, you don't know right away. It might seem like a good idea at first and you do some experimentation. I guess, what makes it seem like a good idea from the very beginning and then how do you validate that? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So I would say... You know, at the very, very beginning, and maybe this is a little bit more personal. I don't know that I've systematized this anywhere within how we operate, but I'm always intrigued by things I hadn't really thought of before, which is maybe counterintuitive to the, you know, work with very specific things in specific verticals. But I'm always looking for a little bit of a, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that that way. So, you know, again, an idea sort of sparks an imagination Part of the job of being an investor is pattern matching. There's no question about that. So oftentimes you see something in a vertical and you think, oh, that's kind of similar to this other thing I did before I built or invested in or worked on. So there's a little bit of that pattern matching that goes into this process as well. But generally for me, we want to be interested in the space, the vertical, the market. But at the end of the day, what we're really going to do is validate that there's a real problem. So that's really where the the sort of heavy lifting comes into play in that pre-incorporation phase is, is there a real problem? Is it largely unmet? You know, are the solutions that exist today not sufficient? The hacks that people are doing, understanding very clearly who the customer is or the user and not just, you know, oh, the user is a small business. That doesn't count. The small business is not, in my mind, it's not really a market. We want to segment that a little bit more and find niches or early adopters. So do we have a real problem? Do we know who has this problem? Do we understand why the existing solutions aren't sufficient? And then do we believe that we have a decent idea of what the solution could be? So before we incorporate, we don't build anything. We might be building concepts or prototypes or doing that sort of testing, but we haven't built an MVP. So those are sort of the criteria on the opportunity. The founder is still, do we believe this person has what it takes to grind this out for the next five to 10 years and build a great company? We've had a number of examples of of startups we've invested in that have pivoted, which is not terribly surprising. So you do all that homework, if you want to think about it that way, and there's still the market's still going to do what the market's going to do, and the founder's going to do what they're going to do. And so there's still lots of room after that validation phase to pivot and adapt the business. But we need that conviction on the problem, the market, more than the market, the user. Who is this customer? And do you really understand what 
what matters to them? And then do we have a sense of what the solution could be? Ben, when you talk about validating the problem, I think this is a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people when they're looking at ideas is the first thing they want to do, but how do they do it, right? Is it by having interviews with companies that are in that space? Is it by looking around to see if this something similar has been done in other markets and you sort of, you know, trying to do the same thing within your given market? Like what kind of tools do you use to validate a problem? Yeah, everything you just described. I think typically it starts with secondary research, which is Google. So you start looking at, well, what else is happening in the space? What investments have recently been made in these spaces? What's happening in different places from a geography standpoint? So often it starts with just sort of that secondary research into these markets to understand them. And again, it's oftentimes we're working in spaces where we already are a little bit dangerous because we're doing work in those spaces or have done work in those spaces with our corporate relationships. So that's one way of sort of getting through some of that. Yeah, we've heard about, you know, we've seen this problem a couple of times or we've heard about this. That's interesting. And then you go into the primary research, which really is starts with interviews. And it depends on your starting point. If you're trying to understand the market, you have to go and identify all those stakeholders. Those could be potential partners, that could be customers, that could be users. And you have to interview all of those people. And then you're trying to triangulate on key themes. You know, what am I hearing? Am I hearing patterns here? Do I see a gaps? Am I hearing pain from these folks? And then whittle down to interviewing of who you think the actual customer or user would be. So a lot of it is, you know, what we would call customer development or customer discovery through interviews. And then you would, depending on whether it's B2B or B2C, there may be different tactics, but often it is getting the landing pages up and running, driving traffic, testing value propositions, testing conversion, maybe building a prototype or a concept and showing it to folks. If you're doing B2B, ideally, you would be able to get letters of intent. So you would you would get a, an LOI from a customer that says, if you build this thing that you showed me, you know, that clickable prototype for, I will pay you 50 bucks a month or whatever it is. So you're trying to right. build up the conviction from research and some experimentation and testing. I suppose in the venture world, like you're really trying to build something innovative and build a significant business. And, you know, that is part of the whole portfolio approach. You know, you're going to have a lot of losers, but the ones that win, you want to see, you know, 10x or more, or maybe even 100x. And I think in that sort of innovative space of trying to really create a really kind of new, new business model, one thing that I saw was just a short clip of Elon Musk talking about this, where he talked about how a common mistake is as founders come up with an idea that's just incrementally better than what's already out there. And there's a graveyard of companies that just don't quite get anywhere because it's just not, it is better, but it's just not, not better by much. You're not solving like a really painful problem in a way that's like completely, you know, game changing. And so, you know, you want to really build something incredibly better, essentially, which I found interesting. You talked about the spaces in which you're dangerous and how, you know, in the angel days, it was really based on, you know, relationships and friends and stuff. But now there's clearly more of a focus on certain spaces. Maybe just talk about that. Which spaces do you really like and why? Sure. By the way, I think, David, on the on your comment there, I often think about good enough. And there's a lot of things that are good enough for people, right? I mean, how many companies have tried to kill email? And yet all that's happened in our lives, our professional lives, is more email, so there's a lot of tools out there that are good enough, a lot of ways people do things that are good enough. 
And you have to be so much better than what's good enough, what's already in somebody's behavior and how they operate to really change the game. That's really the key challenge. But on the spaces, so you know, I can speak to areas that we've done a lot of work in. Insurance is one example. It's a space that we've spun companies out in. We spun a company out with American Family Insurance called Relay Platform that was acquired. So insurance is one of those big, I mean, there's so many ways of slicing insurance, right? So just broadly, insurance is interesting. We've made a couple of investments there. I would say financial services as well. We've uh, done a lot of work with RBC, with RBC Ventures, now what's now called RBCX. And they were looking at a whole swath of different spaces. So again, this is what's interesting about big companies, by the way, is that as you go sort of more macro into what matters to their customers or to them, the spaces start to overlap. You know, you think of RBC, it's a bank. Yes, of course, that's very true. But they're doing things in a whole bunch of verticals and spaces around banking. And that sort of bleeds into what insurance companies are doing or others are doing. So insurance, financial services, we've done quite a bit of work in the consumer packaged goods space as well. And so AB InBev, as an example, which is the biggest beer company in the world, Colgate, we've done a lot of work with Colgate. So CPG is interesting. And CPG is interesting for a lot of reasons. Certainly the brands that they launch, that's interesting. We've done a lot of work there, although we don't invest in consumer packaged goods brands. We've helped a lot of companies thinking about launching new products. But it's everything below that that I find interesting. And by below, I mean, think of the supply chain. Think of what it takes to get a new product on a shelf. That part of it to me, the operational components of that, the supply chain components of that, even some of the marketing that has to go into launching new products is interesting. And then the last thing I'll say on on CPG is that many companies that have that model, I make a product, I sell the product to usually a consumer, often retail, are thinking more broadly about their business. They're thinking about new business models. Services being the most obvious one that's interesting. So I have this asset. I sell a ton of toothpaste on a shelf. What else can I do in that space that becomes interesting? And again, if you look at the portfolio of ventures that RBC has created, you'll see that extension of the services around their core product. So a very, very good example is Owner. Owner started by helping you as an individual, for the most part, start a business. Should I incorporate? Should I? What's the right structure for me? How do I get this thing started? And that's amazing. Uh, and that works very well as a service. And they've started to expand it to do other things. But one of the most logical things that you need after you start a business is a bank account. And so you can see how expanding into other services connects back to your core business as a large company. And you can do that in financial services, insurance, and CPG. We've done some work in the health space as well. But I would say those are the sort of core verticals. But we've dabbled in a host of other verticals as well. And you want to hear about a really good example in that space as well of a company that's been doing something and then sure. expanding. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think I, <laughs> it's a little, a little cheeky. Yeah. <laughs> Being no, a little I, cheeky about it. But yeah, like, I mean, that resonates with us, right? You know, merchant growth's been around for a long time, doing small business loans, the expertise in getting the money out to small businesses, underwriting the risk, so on and so forth, right? So Tabit is really a technology addition to that to help. MG as a whole be at the point of sale. Yeah. It's a natural natural extension of what you know MG has been doing for a long time. And yeah, so leveraging unfair advantage 
And by the way, you know, I say big companies, but in fact, it's actually ambitious companies is the way to think about it, right? You do not have to be a multi-billion dollar company to think about expanding what you offer in creative ways. The challenging part is how do you structurally do it? Because you're running the day-to-day operations of a company, merchant growth. You think, well, how do I, with the team and the resources I have, do these other things? That's where the spin-out model becomes so interesting because you can leverage the core assets, but do it with a separate team, do it with a separate structure. And there's lots of different ways of doing it. So it doesn't even have to be the biggest companies in the world that are creating little businesses that connect into the, the mothership. It can actually just be not just actually, it should just be ambitious companies that do it. So Ben, let's chat a little bit about raising capital with the early stage companies, right? So you guys usually are the first check, you help get it to a certain point. And then, you know, from your experience, at what point, I know there's not maybe a right point for everybody, but at what point do companies usually look at it? And when does it usually work out rather than, you know, times where you're saying, hey, that's too early or you waited too long? Yeah, it's a tough question, of course, because of the circumstances we're living in today. And so today with the economy, and not just the Canadian economy, but all, you know, the global economy sort of wobbling around, uh, it's not quite sure which direction it's going to fall. It's slowed down, generally speaking, uh, venture investing. So that's a challenge for all companies at all stages, including pre-seed, because generally speaking, at the stage we play at, we want startups to get out of the venture studio with a product and with traction. But when I say traction, I don't mean thousands of customers. You know, we're talking I don't know, dozens of customers, right? Early proof that somebody is going to use this thing and or buy this thing, whatever it is. And when the markets get twitchy, the expectation is you need more and more traction to raise dollars. So that's sort of what's happening now is the bar goes up. It gets harder to raise. Investors are slowing down check writing, and that causes a challenge. So for us, I would say, you know, from incorporation, nine months in, we're hoping that they can raise again. Maybe it takes them a little bit long, uh, longer, excuse me, you know, about a year from incorporation, they're raising again. We will typically follow on in that next round, call it the seed round. So we're there to support, but we don't necessarily lead that round because we were there at incorporation. So it is taking longer. The expectations are up. It's taking longer to fundraise. I think that that's important for people to understand. And valuations are dropping. And what I would say about the Canadian market is it's never as excitable as the US market. That's not a terrible thing. So it's never as exuberant, but it ices up a little bit faster. And that's tough. So if you're a very early stage Canadian company, raising south of the border can be challenging. And so you look at the Canadian market and say, where are the angels? Where are the other, you know, seed or pre-seed investors that I can raise from? And that's tough. And in terms of advice you give founders, and perhaps you actually even exert a bit of control over this, I don't know, but what do you try to avoid in terms of structures and so forth? You know, stacked prefs and minimum multiple capital and other types of terms, like getting a little bit more specific into what are some mistakes you've seen founders make and how they raise the money? Well, I can say when times were more exuberant, what founders were doing was stacking safes. And that's that's going to bite us all in the rear end because at some point those things have to convert or not because the thing you know falls apart. But a safe on top of a safe on top of a safe sounded really good because you could punt the future valuation. That's a problem. 
I would say valuation is a really sensitive issue for folks uh, because founders want a high valuation. And again, when, you know, even just a, six months ago, a year ago, people were raising at really high valuations and now they can't grow into those valuations. So pretty much every round is a bridge round, which is, you know, give me a little bit of money, you know, at the same valuation just to try to survive or a down, which if you've ever been on the receiving end of a down round, it's it's awful, right? You feel, you'll feel, you actually kind of feel like a failure already. And that might not be the case at all. It's just, you raise at a high valuation when you could. So we try to think a little bit more strategically about those things. Don't be crazy on valuation. Keep control of the company. Keep control of the board, as an example, right? Don't cede control of the company, but you know, you'll know you have to deal with bridge rounds, down rounds, liquidation preferences. You're going to start seeing people put 2x, 3x on those. And again, you're hunting the problems for later. And if you have to raise the money and those are the terms and the power has shifted more into the VC's hands, you're going to have to do it or find another way to survive. It's really as simple as that. But those are the kinds of things that they bite you in the rear end later on when you go to exit and the investors are taking 3x of their money out. So I like to take a measured approach. Don't go crazy on valuation because you might not grow into it. Don't over dilute, but don't go crazy there. Assume it's going to take longer to raise It is definitely the case. And what you're also now seeing are these smaller raises. Let me raise a little bit. So it's like the bridge, the bridge, the bridge, hopefully not a bridge to nowhere, but that's what you're also seeing. And that's just the reality. If you, so the, the ultimate advice is you do whatever it takes to keep your company alive or you shut your company down. Those are your tests. Good, good way to boil it down. You know, on the valuation point, I've always been very passionate about what you just said around what you're really optimizing for. And I've also seen entrepreneurs really try to optimize for the highest valuation as if that's the goal. And merchant growth was a bootstrap business for 10 years, but we did do our first and only equity round in 2021. And in pricing that and working through that, uh, I personally felt a real desire to ensure a positive outcome for everyone who invests in the round. And so it's not like I wanted to sell shares at a discount, but I wanted to model this whole thing out that I have a reasonable probability of a really nice outcome. It's going to build my reputation and it's going to make a bunch of investors happy. Like that should be, I think, thought about maybe a little bit more than it, it often is. Yeah, because it's a power dynamic issue where it shifts. And generally speaking, the power does lie with the investors because they get to decide whether to invest or not. And the unfortunate sort of lousy part of the job is you say no to most people. Right, all day. No, I'm not investing. No, I'm not investing. And that's, I don't really love that part of the job. It's just part of it. So the power dynamic is always in the hands mostly of the VCs. But when the markets get really hot, the power dynamic shifts over to the founders and they optimize for things like valuation. And and I, I get why they're doing it, but it, it's actually very high risk because if you don't grow into that valuation, which frankly, very few people are growing into any type of valuations right now, you get your ass handed to you. And that could be a down round. That could be getting fired from your own company. That happens more than people realize it happens. You know, so as soon as you take institutional capital, there's some serious negative, potential negative repercussions that you have to think about. So to me, it's a power dynamic thing. And I get founders that are trying to optimize for valuation. In the long run, it's not worth it. You know, in my view, I would almost prefer you optimize at that point for early exit. Which again, downstream investors might not, you know, they need gigantic exits for the model to work. 
But angel investors, for example, or pre-seed investors, they don't necessarily, from a math perspective, need gigantic, gigantic exits to make the economics of their investing work. And so at that point, I'd almost prefer you try to exit early when you're thinking about crazy high valuations, because that is a situation where you can still do very well as a founder, extremely well, but also your investors can do well and everybody else can, as long as it's not as long as the time to get there is not long. You can't do a company for 10 years and then really get like small exit. That doesn't count, right? But if you can launch something and get to a place where you can exit three years, four years, that could be very good for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, Ben, uh, this has been a great chat. I know we can probably go on for a lot longer. So let's, um, you know, we usually like to end this with one question about, you know, the future, right? So in, in your space, if you're looking down 10 years from now, what would you be happy to have seen happen within the venture studio, venture capital space, or even angel investing? Yeah. So for me, I think on the venture studio side, like accelerators before venture studios, they gained an enormous amount of popularity. Many, many accelerators were launched. Now many venture studios, people are calling themselves venture studios when they don't even, nobody even knows what it means anymore. So I I do think you're going to see many venture studios disappear over the next handful of years. Because build it, it turns out building companies is really hard. So for anybody out there, think, just so you know, it turns out it's really hard. It's not so magical, right? It's not, you know, and there's a lot of hero worshiping in the startup ecosystem, but it, it's bloody hard. So that's one thing I think is we're going to see a lot of venture studios kind of disappear. At the end of the day, what I'd love to see in the Canadian ecosystem is the continued professionalization of venture studios, angel investing, venture capital. I think we need more companies created. So as, as hard as it is, I still think we, we need more startups to get created. We need more people trying. Uh, we need more repeat founders. So to me, it's that professionalization of the ecosystem. That's what I would love to see. I think we're, we're on the way. It, it takes longer than maybe a lot of people would like. For me personally, it's continue to build companies, continue to grow Highline Beta, continue to make more pre-seed investments in great founders and help people build amazing companies. So that's it for me. This is it, right? Just keep doing this and growing it. But generally, that's what I hope is that sort of professionalization and maybe sophistication as well, right? Mm -hmm. Just, you know, how do we make this industry more sophisticated, smarter at what we do so we can collectively invest in and build better companies? That's a great answer, Ben. Thank you so much uh, again for that. I really hope, you know, someone listening here kind of has learned something new and even reaches out about this because it's it's really tough at that stage, right? When you have an idea, really excited, have no idea where to start. And so, uh, you know, you're a great contact uh, to have. So hopefully people have gotten value from this. To the listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Fintrepreneur. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and we'll see you next week. Thanks everyone. I really love what you're doing, Ben. Appreciate you being okay. on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it.